0: Welcome to episode 19 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey, none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine.
1: And I'm Charlotte Metcalf, and I'm the associate editor at Country and Townhouse.
0: We'll be back on Sunday, January the 10th, but this is our last podcast before Christmas, so it's going to be full of singing and dancing and wine. Charlotte and I are off to celebrate with a glass of Santa Cecilia from Planeta, which we are assured by the great wine company, now our sponsor, that it tastes as delicious with Christmas feasts as it does in the blazing Sicilian sunshine.
1: And I can actually vouch for that, having sampled some uh, secretly before this. <laughs> um, <laughs> And you can get your Santa Cecilia and many, many more as the Great Wine Company has all kinds of wines and champagnes to suit all palates from their website, which is greatwine.co.uk. They have a great selection from all over the world and even have biodynamic, organic and vegan wines. They'll deliver anywhere in the UK. So make sure to stock up for Christmas.
0: I have to say, trying to say something like drink Santa Cecilia in the blazing Sicilian sunshine <laughs> sounds like a test for whether or not you've had one or two glasses of Santa Cecilia <laughs> in the Sicilian sunshine. As you can tell, I've yet to imbibe, but it's sitting there winking at me subductively. And also, because I haven't drunk any, I can remember to remind you and every listener <laughs> on this podcast that you will get 10% of any wine or champagne from the website greatwine.co.uk until the end of January. You just have to use the code Breakout all one word capital letters any regular listener to this podcast will know how much i love ballet and dance we try to cover it as much as possible but with half an hour a week we don't always manage to do enough as we'd like so i'm delighted to say that today we're going to be talking about two brilliant christmas dance treats the Nutcracker at the Royal Opera House, and Hans Christian Andersen's The Little Match Girl at Sadler's Wells.
1: Yes, and we're going to start with The Little Match Girl because it's been reimagined to have a surprise, magical and hopeful ending, which is something we're all very much in need of at the end of 2020. I last saw a production of The Little Match Girl at The Globe about two years ago, and it was actually rather devastating, though very moving. So I can't wait to hear about a more upbeat version. And we're lucky to have with us today the choreographer and director of this new version, Arthur Pitter. Good morning, Arthur.
2: Good morning. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, thank you for abandoning your rehearsals. I know the show starts any day now on the 17th of December. So we're very grateful to you for sparing us the time. So tell us how this is going to differ from the usual rather tragic story.
2: Yes, um, it's a it's a really tragic story, and um, it's a, you know and I think that's what often people um, avoid it. And the moment you say um, the little match girl, people often go, "Oh, that's that sad one." Um, so when I started thinking about it, I was trying to think of a way out of out of that sad moment. But obviously, we all know she dies um, in the snow, impoverished, um, and was trying to seek help from people to sell matches, no one bought her matches, and she froze while making her last wishes. Her and basically meeting her grandmother, who takes her to heaven. At the time of um, creating the piece, I was actually watching um, a documentary about astronauts and um, there was a very profound moment when the astronauts were talking about looking back at the Earth when they were out of space and how touching and how moving it was to see the planet and, and how, what, what a beautiful planet we have and it made me think about, you know, this time of the year when it comes to the end of the year and we all start to reflect back and especially this year we start looking back at our lives and we look at everything that's happened. So in a way I kind of wanted to find something it was kind of this, this bird's eye view and I just thought well wouldn't it be lovely if her grandma mother just took her to the moon so that we could we could uh, you know have the sense of this afterlife or perhaps a, a dreamlike uh, afterlife but also you know when you're presenting work especially something like a christmas show to many different people of different ethnicities a diverse audience with a lot of different backgrounds with religious backgrounds you know i didn't want to go to that um, sort of christian heaven place which is what hans christian andersen had risen. but i would i wanted to try to find a place that that was that everyone, you basically would look up in the sky and see.
1: Oh, it's amazing. But also you've set it in Italy, haven't you? Why, why did you do that?
2: Yes, well, um, there's, some, there's some text in it and there's some singing in it, as a, as well as a lot of dancing. And um, the moment I started thinking about it being in English, um, it just started sounding like um, Oliver Twist, you know, an orphan child <laughs> in London, <laughs> and uh, you know, kind of selling matches, and you know, obviously making the the word match uh, matches in Italian is uh, fiammiferi. And of course, so much you, nicer. Oh my
1: it's goodness, It's a beautiful yeah. word, yeah. <laughs>
2: and actually, the name of Little Match Girl, and it's a real Italian name, is Fiametta, which means flame. Also, another influence that I wanted to bring um, to a family audience, to a young audience, which was my influence of Fellini. So when you watch a Fellini film, the language isn't important at all. It's almost just like sort of a texture. You know, what you're really looking at is the imagery. So I wanted to create this... um Really, this faraway place that I knew most of the audience wouldn't understand the language, but the texture would just become almost like uh, you know, like a like a lovely kind of uh, flowing sound. And actually, it's been really interesting because not once has any, as any of the kids, or any of the children, or any of the families, uh, gone. Oh, why is it in Italian? They all just they kind of sometimes guess what the language is, and then they just follow on what's happening because it's quite straightforward. But in a way, it's almost the experience of watching um, watching a foreign film, but really with the imagery. So uh, and. Italian is such a beautiful poetic language, but also it's very easy on the ear. So it's very easy to sing. It's very, you know, it just rolls off the tongue so beautifully. So what's the ratio of dance to opera then in this? Oh, no, there's, there's, we have one main aria, which is sung by the grandmother, uh, which we call her uh, Nonna Luna. And then there's, there's a few, there's a kind of, there's a family that, like a singing family, basically, that the little match girl meets. and, uh, And she's trying to get help from them and trying to sell a match to them. They're quite nasty to her and um, they're quite gluttonous you know they, they really sort of overshop overspend and are quite uh, <laughs> cruel you know they are really the villains of the piece so they do some singing but there's generally there's dancing throughout so you know she meets um, a character there's, who's a lamplighter who comes and lights the lamps on the streets she has a game with him she, um, when she goes to the moon she has a duet with the astronaut uh, who's who has a moon landing and she has a lot of social. And when they sell the matches, the matches are done through expression of dance. So she kind of uses text, but there's constant movement um, throughout. So I would say it's a kind of it's a bit of a triple threat, the show. You know, they're singing, acting, dancing. But I would say that the majority of the piece is definitely dancing. It's definitely a dance show.
0: This is the first time you've done the, the Little Match Girl, isn't it? But it's been on, I think, for six years at Sadler's Wells.
2: Yes, this there's is something the...
0: about there's something about it that audiences love.
2: Yeah, it's uh, you know this is our seventh season actually. But what's interesting about it, I think, as a piece, is that it's quite the opposite to um, a pantomime where the concentration is different. It's really beautiful to see a young audience actually concentrating in a different way. It's not it's not a hyperactive you know where where everyone is getting overexcited. It's it's a very you know often. Watch it, the show, and I see parents and children, and the parents are sort of cuddling the children, and there's this lovely calm um, atmosphere as they're watching this, you know, this little magical world out there. And I find it very moving.
1: Oh, well, I think we're going to hear a little snippet of it, aren't we? Now, what are we going to hear?
2: We are going to hear um, a snippet of the aria called Nona Luna," which is when um, the the grandmother takes the little match girl to the moon.
0: I love it when we have snippets. It makes our podcast sound so professional.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, not with your dog in it, Ed. Yes. (laughs) It's a
0: a washing machine today.
1: Oh, it's a washing machine.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Arthur, is Peter an Italian name?
2: No, actually, I'm Portuguese. Oh. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, my parents are from Madeira Island, yeah. and that's where the Peters come from. Oh, well, thank Brilliant. you so
1: much for taking so much time out of your rehearsal to talk to us. Thank you very much indeed, and good luck with it.
2: Thank you so much.
0: Just before we move on, we wanted to mention that Sadler's Wells also had a global fundraising gala on the 5th of December, supported by Bottega Veneta with appearances from amazing dancers and choreographers like Carlos Acosta, Sylvie Gillen, Akram Khan and Natalia Osipova.
1: And if you missed it, please don't despair because you can still see it on Sadler's Wells' YouTube channel until the 5th of January. It's free to watch and we'll put all the details of that up on our website.
0: Now, did you know that the tradition of sending Christmas cards was started in 1843 by Henry Cole, the founding director of of the vna actually i did know that amazingly one of the facts (laughs) i did know henry cole did actually commission and send the first christmas card well now there's a festive display of over 100 original christmas cards dating from the 1950s to the present day made and designed by celebrated british artists like edward borden ben nicholson and john piper the exhibition is called christmas greetings and it's on at the Pallant house gallery which is a jewel of a gallery that Charlotte and I love in Chichester, and it's on until 12th night on
1: January the 6th. Yes, I agree with that. It's one of my absolute favourites. And I cannot recommend Pallant House Gallery more highly. As a bit of a cultural break for anyone wanting some time off from Christmas shopping and all the high street crowds, which don't seem to be socially distanced whatsoever. Well, that's um, now, by Harrods, wasn't it? Terrible. Oh, terrible. Oh, yeah. Good. I couldn't and, get in. <laughs> I bet you weren't glad to get in you, It's
0: my local anyway. Carry
1: on. <laughs> anyway, for those who don't know it, Pallant House Gallery is housed in a beautiful Georgian building with a clever contemporary addition, and it has a gorgeous courtyard full of pleached trees. That's one of the nicest places to have lunch or coffee on a summer day, and even a winter day because that's now open again. But really, as if determined to rise phoenix-like again from the ashes of lockdown, Pallant House is really pushing the boat out because alongside its Christmas cards display it's mounting two major exhibitions and here to tell us about them is the gallery's director Simon Martin. Good morning Simon. Good morning.
0: It's great to have you with us and you've got a lot to tell us so start with your Richard Hamilton Retrospective. I've got a Richard Hamilton print, actually. I think
1: it is called "Respective," isn't it? You're going to have to talk us through that rather than "retrospective." Oh, these, I um,
0: thought I thought it was a Charlotte typo on her well, no, Talk that's us what through I the Richard Hamilton "Respective." Simon's gone completely silent. <laughs> saying, who, are these, who are these
3: two balmy people? <laughs> so, Richard Hamilton "Respective." In fact, "Respective" is actually a pun, and it's the title of one of the works in the exhibition. We have a really wonderful collection of pop art at Pallant House Gallery, and included amongst this is a strong group of works by Richard Hamilton. He was, of course, a key figure in British art of the post-war years. And in many ways, the person who defined the early years of pop art when he described it in terms of mass culture, popular, transient, gimmicky, and he was in some ways quite a cerebral artist and he was very, very interested in international modernism and particularly in artists such as Marcel Duchamp. And so this is an exhibition which is almost entirely drawn from Pallant House Gallery's collection and it features 20 paintings, sculptures and prints and then about 30 works from our archive and so it's a really rich group of works and it takes us from 1951 where Hamilton was starting to get involved with the Institute of Contemporary Arts in London and we have posters that he designed for James Joyce exhibition in the early 50s, right the way through to works depicting uh, Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones after he was arrested for drugs offences. In fact, that happened in Chichester. And there's a really remarkable work called Swinging London. It was the title Um, was a pun relating to the judge who declared a swinging sentence and of course swinging London of the 1960s and this is a sort of relief work which shows a police van and a screen printed and painted photograph of Mick Jagger and the art dealer Robert Fraser inside and Hamilton made a number of works featuring this and we also have a montage of press cuttings, which reported the extreme interest in the case, and then also some of the related etchings. And of course, all the way through his career, Hamilton was interested in technology. And I think this is why he was interested also in Marcel Duchamp, and in the relationship between man, machine, and in reproduction. And we're very fortunate to have a work that he created together with Marcel Duchamp. And this was called The Oculist Witnesses. And across the exhibition, we have works in a range of different materials. One of the really amazing things is a roto-relief, a circular disc with optical designs, which was originally made by Marcel Duchamp in, I think, around 1935. And Hamilton included a number of them in a really seminal exhibition in 1956 at the Whitechapel Art Gallery, which was called This Is Tomorrow. And lots of architects, artists, and theorists worked together on this. And this is really the starting point for the pop art collection at Pallant House Gallery. And so, it. Overall, the the exhibition is a fascinating dip into the world of Richard Hamilton through a representative group of works from our collection.
1: Well, I know that Pallant House is celebrated for your British collection, but what fewer people know, and actually I didn't know this either, is that it also has an astonishing collection of international masters, which are now the basis for your new show, Degas to Picasso. So... Um, This is a great, big, fantastic show.
3: Tell our listeners what they're going to see. Well, it takes us through 100 years of modern art, and there's 47 artists. And the great thing is it's entirely drawn from our permanent collection, which has only been formed in the last 40 years. So it starts with etchings by Manet and lithographs by Cézanne through other works that we've recently acquired. For example, in 2016, we acquired a wonderful Edgar Degard drawing of, um, and it shows a female nude brushing her hair. And this work, in a way, has the most interesting backstory in that it belonged to Gladys Deacon, who was an American society beauty who later became the Duchess of Marlborough. And she was supposedly the lover of the crown prince of Prussia and, and all kinds of other people, in fact. And and then just last year in 2019 we acquired through the uh, the government's acceptance in lieu scheme an Edward Weir of, of a model brushing her hair in the studio and this came from the estate of Jeremy Hutchinson Lord Hutchinson who was the famous barrister and QC who had defended um, infamous. Um, people like Christine Keeler and also Penguin and the Lady Chatterley obscenity trial. And so in a way, this exhibition is as much a story about collecting and the individuals behind the collection as it is a history of modern art. And it takes us through works by Picasso and Matisse and a group of works by the French Cubists. And... You might think it's quite unlikely for a place like Chichester, which is an English cathedral city, to have these international treasures. But in fact, over the last 40 years, we've received a number of gifts and bequests from individuals. And so there are some really wonderful works. And, And one of the things we really wanted to do at the moment is to have something where in a moment we've had to completely rethink our programme because our our planned exhibitions had to be moved back a year. And so we thought, well, you know, what can we do that will surprise people that people won't know we have? And so this is what we decided to do. We actually put this exhibition together in three months and we did a lot of conservation. And we, we remounted works which we'd not shown before And it's really exciting to show these. Um, There's a lot of vibrant works for these rather depressing times. And particularly when people can't get abroad easily to Europe um, at the moment, we're trying to bring international, something international to Chichester.
0: It's very unusual, actually, for a provincial gallery to build up such an incredible collection over the last 40 years most of the provincial galleries have relied on their collections having been built up in the sort of 19th century by rich plutocratic merchants?
3: Yes, I, I think one of the things that is very interesting is the kind of collectors. And, you know, whilst we've got significant figures like Colin Singer Wilson, the architect of the British Library, or Walter Hussey, who was the dean of the cathedral in Chichester, and who actually commissioned a lot of modern art himself um, in the cathedral, so from artists like Mark Chagall, Graham Sutherland, and John Piper. But one of the most curious ones was somebody called Michael Woodford, who lived in a former council flat and started his career as a rubbish collector and became a school caretaker. He didn't actually go on holidays, apparently. he He saved his money to buy Picasso prints. And years ago I had to go and see him when I was assistant curator and I turned up at his house and I thought we'd actually got the wrong address. And there was just stuff everywhere, piles of things. And yet he bequeathed all his artworks to us.
1: What I think is so amazing about your gallery is one of its huge charms is that it's delightfully kind of small but perfectly formed. You know, it's very manageable. It's a real you really feel you can get to grips with it in a day. Where on earth is are you keeping
3: all this stuff? We're, we're bursting at the seams, to be honest. But actually, any good museum needs to grow and needs to aspire to be the best it can be. And that's what we've aspired to do over the years. We, we, we try to make sure that everything in the collection is of great quality. And what we show is thoughtfully put together. And so when people come it might be a completely different experience from the previous visit. And and that really seems to strike a chord with our visitors. And the feedback seems to be very good, which is really quite rewarding for us at the moment. Oh,
0: well, we love Brilliant. it. Thank you very much. What an inspiring interview. I think... Uh you will have thousands of breakout (laughs) culture podcast listeners descending on you in the next three weeks. So you might have to erect a marquee or something to accommodate
1: (laughs) Well, We're certainly coming. Thank you so much, Simon. Thank you very much.
0: We want to end with The Nutcracker, a national Christmas favourite that's on at the Royal Opera House till the 3rd of January. It's a restaging of Peter Wright's two-act production and features students from the Royal Ballet School alongside the full company. It needs no introduction, of course, as it's so firmly embedded in the British consciousness. So I'm just going to hand over to Kevin O'Hare, the director of the
4: Royal Ballet, to tell us all about it. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning, Ed. It's really good to be here. And uh, it's a very exciting day uh, because we're about to open the Nutcracker. Yeah.
1: Good morning, Kevin. And it must be so exciting finally to be staging this. And your students as well, as the entire company, must be thrilled to have a chance to be on stage.
4: Well, yeah, Nutcracker is sort of a, a rites of passage, really, you know, so it's, it's something that all the young children at White Lodge, the Royal Ballet's Junior School uh, are involved in normally. And so many, many of the dancers, like more than half of the dancers that are in the company today have all been either a mouse or a party child or Fritz. <laughs> In, in the Nutcracker. So, you know, I was talking to Matthew Ball, one of our now leading principals, and, uh, you know, he remembers the day when he was Fritz and sort of nervously waiting for the camera to go off and slightly sh- uh, the the curtain to go off and slightly shaking, you know, with the, the thought of being on the Covent Garden stage. So it is that thing that they've all done. Well, what I, w- I wanted to just briefly detour
0: because I hadn't appreciated that basically every ballet dancer will have performed in the Nutcracker at some point in their career. I mean, it, it, and I, this, I love this idea of it being a sort of rite of passage. I mean, it, I, I can sort of picture a WhatsApp group, Nutcracker alumni or alumni. <laughs> nine. I mean, is it something that kind of brings, I mean, it's a really weird question, is it something that brings ballet dancers together? Which Nutcracker were you in?
4: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think there is something of that, you know. And funny enough, I was at that little period of time when when I was at the Royal Ballet School at White Lodge where they didn't do the Nutcracker. So in the sort of late 60s, early 70s, there was a version of the Nutcracker by um, Rudolf Nureyev. And so they did that. And so the year I joined in second year of the White Lodge and the year before me did the last ever Um, run of the new era for Nutcracker and so they were all full of stories of it so my era felt very left out and then in 1984 um, Peter Wright uh, uh, put together a new version of, of, of The Nutcracker and that in different uh, guises, it's been slightly changed over the years, but um, it's been going for that long now. And we generally perform it every every year. Sometimes I give it a rest. And, and Sod's Law, I gave it a rest last year, thinking, oh, everybody would like a little break and so we give Coppelia. And now, of course, it's like... Yeah. I. You know, really, especially if we weren't going to do it this year, it would have been a bad move. But so that's why I'm thrilled that we've got it this year. It, we've forensically gone into every little detail of of the production from, from the moment the curtain goes up to every scene. Wherever we can, we've sort of mitigated any contact with people and, and partnering. So, for instance, the, the famous walls of the Flowers, which is towards the end of the ballet, um We've managed it with nobody actually touches each other in the whole thing. And actually, if you came to see it, you wouldn't realize, I don't think. We've snipped a little bit. And uh, as, I, as I do tend to say, no, every show is about 10 minutes too long, to be honest. So you know, <laughs> so 10 minutes off is a good thing, I think. And so it's very sharp, very tight. and uh, But all the things that you want about Nutcracker are there, even up until the general rehearsal yesterday we were masked on stage with the costumes and sometimes, sometimes people went I can't put my mask on because I got my wig and it's going over <laughs> my ears and how am I gonna do it? so all these things that you would never think of plus we we test twice a week so every Tuesday and Thursday um, I hear the patter of feet going down past my office to where we've set up the testing uh, regime and uh, yeah we it's not I, I always you know until about 12 o'clock when it's all over I'm sort of Sort of on of hooks, hooks, But um, yeah, we um, got through it all yesterday. So we're good to go. I can finally say that, really.
1: I know. I mean, it's a hell of a show to get on the road at short notice. So I'm just wondering, at what stage did you take the momentous decision? Right, we're going to go through all this and take a big risk because you know anything could happen
4: well in the end uh, uh, we would we talked about it quite early on you know sort of september time you know do you think we could do it and that's when i talked to um uh sapita wright and then actually what i did say before was that i had um also because of the battle scene which is normally all the children but um, well, we decided, I said, let's do a new battle scene. So I asked Will Tuckett, the great choreographer and director, to come in and, and do a new battle scene. So we would, it so I think it was about October when he came in, and by October we we're like, we're just going to blindly go forward. <laughs> you know, this sort of <laughs> blind optimism of we will go there, we will do this.
1: Oh well, you're doing such a service for ballet lovers everywhere. <laughs> so huge, good luck with it, Kevin. How exciting!
4: Yeah, thank you. And uh, yeah, it's, it's it's one of those, you know, when we talk about it as a rite of passage for the. For the dancers but also I think for our audiences as well a lot of people that are coming have maybe came as a child to see it and then they they then bring their children and then there's grandchildren so it's it's a sort of right passage for the audience as well and so I feel you know I hope that when that curtain goes up everybody will for two hours, just forget about the whole thing and just get immersed in this uh, beautiful fairy tale and these wonderful dancers here in the wonderful orchestra and you know feel like a little kid again you know watching that christmas tree grow
1: opening night tonight so huge good luck with it thank you thank so
4: you. much kevin thanks so much
1: now before we go i just wanted to mention a couple of things first um i went to see a christmas carol last night at the bridge which was utterly superb honestly kill for a ticket if there are any left and i gather that are returns regularly as people get corona and can't go so do try and go and see that it's
0: great people are getting corona and returning their tickets
1: <laughs> <laughs> no but there are still you can still get to see it and it is really worth it and also, I don't know if you've seen it, Ed, but have you discovered the announcer from... No,
0: you haven't told me about this. This is a crime, Charlotte, for you not to tee these up.
1: <laughs> well, I'm telling you and all our listeners now at the same time. So I have discovered the announcer from Walter Presents on More 4. It's a fabulous French drama, and it's set in a TV station in 1960s Paris. And my slight crush, uh, Gregory Fitoussi, who was in Mr Selfridge and Spihal, isn't it? And this series has been described as Mad Men meets Agatha Christie. And it's a real visual treat with a plot that twists and turns. So if you think you've waded through all the usual box sets, here's one you might just not yet have got round to looking at. And it really is a delight.
0: I'm watching This Is Us, which is a terrible sort of saccharine US drama, which uh, is apparently an amazing phenomenon. It's been around since 2016. So I've got five series to catch up on. And... um, it's sort of uh, heartbreaking and tragic. It's about a family which has the kind of perfect husband and wife. Uh, They have twin son and daughter but they also adopt a third child and it works incredibly well because it sort of follows all their lives into adulthood and uses flashbacks. So one episode you're watching the story of the parents meeting and getting married, another one you're watching the grown-up children navigate some crisis and it's uh utterly utterly addictive it does get a bit too much sometimes in terms of the kind of saccharine the father <laughs> in particular, the father in particular can't open his mouth without delivering uh numerous uh homilies but i'll tell you the other thing i tried to watch mank which is the uh Oh, yes, Netflix yes. it's Film about uh, uh, Mankiewicz, who is supposed to be the um, writer behind Citizen Kane, but I have only got a third of the way through it. I find it incredibly dull and uninspired. It's by
1: David Fincher, isn't it? Yeah, that, despite that, the that fact it, that
0: everyone is raving about it as the next big oh, film. really? I, it's not engaged me in the slightest.
1: Oh, how interesting. Because I heard it was absolutely—you know—it has been raved about. You're right, and because David Fincher hasn't done. Anything for a while, has he? And if David Fincher famously did seven, and actually I remember him as when I used to make pop videos, he was around then making much grander pop videos than I was. He was doing Madonna and all kinds of people, but he's been around a long time, and this is meant to be his great crowning glory. Anyway, the second thing I wanted to make sure you all do is tune into the self isolation. Choir's Christmas at Home concert on December the 20th. Regular listeners will know that we had the choir leader Ben England on this podcast a few weeks ago, and he made it sound such fun that I actually joined up. I couldn't sing then, and I certainly can't sing now, but what I have learned is that it doesn't matter. The point is, I don't care anymore, and it's just wonderful to be singing along with thousands and thousands of others. Even if my neighbours have been giving me very strange looks after rehearsals, but Ben is just which one kind of rock in. And
0: roll, which rock and roll neighbour has come into? <laughs> I saw that your encounter with ABC made it into the Times diary. I know. Mick Jagger knocked on the door and said, "Charlotte, can you keep the noise down?"
1: Oh, I just invite him in. <laughs> <laughs> love Mick Jagger to knock on my door. Dream on, I'd love it. <laughs> Um, anyway, Ben, England, is um, just incredible. He's just such a sort of bundle of enthusiasm and encouragement in a Santa hat, and I've loved every minute of being part of that choir. So I strongly recommend that you join in on the 20th December. Just Google the self com for all the details. That's all we got time for this week, and indeed this year, yay, we get a holiday. <laughs> Country
0: and Townhouse isn't going anywhere. You can go on our website, countryandtownhouse.co.uk, forward slash newsletter for all the latest cultural news while we're away. And you'll also find our sister podcast there, House Guest with Carol Annette. But for now, thank you for listening to us and we hope you'll tune back in in January.
1: I've loved every minute of it. In fact, podcasting kept me sane in lockdown. So thank you to all our listeners. We hope you have a very happy Christmas. And in case you're in any doubt about the self-isolation choir, here's a flavour of what thousands of people all alone in their living rooms around the world are capable of